Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about a very serious topic, suicide prevention, and our guest today is Misty Vaughn Allen, Suicide Prevention Coordinator for the State Office of Suicide Prevention. Misty, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sherry. It's a pleasure. Very, very important topic, and I don't have to tell you that you've been doing this for 15 years. You've been talking about suicide prevention. Can I ask you a few questions about that, Misty? What made you go into this line of work, and why is this so important to you personally? Absolutely. Ironically, I started as a zoologist because I loved animals, and that was meant to be my path. But in the process of out in the field, being in the Peace Corps, I encountered people in crisis and came back to Reno and got my marriage and family therapy degree and had the most wonderful experience at the crisis call center for several years. I was a volunteer there for sexual assault survivors and then I got the job running the suicide prevention hotline and that changed my world. And I remember I that. look back. Yeah, you and I, you've yes. known each other for a very long time. <laughs> so I've actually been doing this work over 20 years. Yeah, the crisis call mm-hmm. center. When, when was that started? The crisis call center is over 50 years old. I want to say 1968. I should know this by heart. Uh Um, 1968 at at the University of Nevada, Reno, in a little basement. I remember that. I know. And it's still doing amazing work. And then they moved to the house on Evans. Yes. Yes. And that's where I was. And it was just so homey and wonderful. And we had volunteers, mostly volunteers, answering the hotline at that point in time, and now it's grown into a huge staff, still volunteer responders, text line, and we're looking at so many other options for, at this point, there's an initiative called Crisis Now where they're trying to build kind of an air traffic control system for crisis response. And so Crisis Support Services of Nevada which used to be the Crisis Call Center, right. will be a huge key component of that. Oh, for goodness sake! Really exciting. Well, I want to get back to that a little bit uh, towards the end of the podcast so Absolutely. people will know where to call. But let's talk about the last 15 years for you. I mean, this is a very heavy topic. Um, it's one that you're committed and dedicated to. What's been, what has it been like in the last 15 years, and what changes have you seen? When I started at the Crisis Call Center in the 90s, Nevada had the highest or one of the highest rates of suicide in the nation for decades. And in 1998, because our Senator Harry Reid disclosed that he was a survivor of his father's suicide, and that changed the course of suicide prevention across the nation. Nevada was just starting with developing a coalition for suicide prevention, and we were going to the legislature to ask for support for suicide prevention. There was very little in the state, even though we had the highest rates. Well, why do you think we had the highest rates? It's a very complex issue. And if you look at national statistics, the Intermountain West is a region that has consistently had the highest rates. What comes with that are rural, mountainous, isolated states, And when I say isolated, not just geography, mountains, desert, really frontier territories, but also the communities are isolated from resources. In Nevada, we love our space. And so even our neighbors are at a distance. And our freedom. Uh And so when you think about needing help 
or offering help. Sometimes that isolation, that ruralness makes it difficult. Well, when you look at, say, per capita from uh, the Clark County or Southern Nevada area to Washoe County to the frontier and rural counties on a per capita basis, which one has the highest rate of suicide? The rurals. We regroup we, we them because the population is so low, so we usually group them by counties. Washoe County would be second, and Clark County would have the third highest rate. Mm-hmm. Wow. So over the 15 years, when we're talking about uh, trends and different things that we've seen, I know that back when Senator Reid got involved and why his disclosing the suicide in his family meant so much is because people didn't talk about it, right? The stigma was huge then. It still is, but in 2018, a report was released called Vital Signs, and it showed that Nevada was the only state in the nation that has not increased since 1999. Oh, wow. 1999 was right after the Reno conference that Senator Reid inspired. A call of action came out of that, and they developed a national strategy. So since that time, national rates have increased over 30, 36% except for Nevada, where we've held steady. In fact, we were the only state to go down about 1%. And you attribute that to probably multiple factors. It, it, I never answered this question really well, because even nationally, they would say, well, Nevada still concerns us. Nevada's an anomaly. But we've held steady for three years. And things are still pretty challenging for our state. Right. In many um, social determinants, I will say. And so I was never quite sure. We started with one of the highest rates. So we had, you know, further to fall. Right. And everyone else is rising to meet us. But as I've sought, sat and contemplated this, we have done incredibly well with our programming and our outreach. So when in the 90s, when the stigma was so profound, I think our programs, school-based mental health and social workers, We have gone to the legislature and fought for mandated suicide prevention education across the majority of healthcare fields. We have trained tens of thousands of people in suicide prevention, intervention, and awareness across the state. I think those efforts are starting to show the impact. And the suicide prevention training, I think you said a few minutes ago that we're doing it in the schools. We are... The last legislative session in 2019, they did have several bills related to suicide prevention in the schools. So we are still getting those policies and procedures up and going across the districts and across the state. But yes, that will bring student suicide prevention awareness, teacher education, and hopefully more awareness for families. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the numbers. The rates from 10 to 24-year-olds increased from 2007 to 2017 at 56%, but that's not necessarily in Nevada. And then when we say that uh, the second leading cause of ages 10, 14, 15, 19, 20, and 24 um, was the cause of death for those age groups. So now that we're talking about suicide prevention in the schools, Um, Let's talk about what that might look like and how some of those stats can go down with that prevention. That's such a great question, Sherry. When when we began with grant programming federally, they had a grant called the Garrett Lee Smith Youth Suicide Prevention Grant. We were awarded that in 2005 for the first time. Our youth rates were in the top 10. Currently, as of 2017, we hover around the national average for youth rates. So that 
Those grants, we had several rounds, afforded us the opportunity to decrease stigma, increase awareness, and educate youth-serving adults across the state. We also implemented, in 2005, um, school-based screening. It started as a Columbia Teen Screen. It now has shifted to signs of suicide awareness and screening. And who does that screening, Misty? Partners across the state are able, and anyone can do this. Currently in Washoe County, the school district works with the Children's Cabinet in a great partnership to bring education to all middle school students. And then with parental permission, they will screen those students, but only with parental permission. And what about primary care physicians? Are they screening for suicide? We are working to bring an initiative called the Zero Suicide Initiative to all of Nevada, and that is healthcare-based. So it would incorporate hospitals, primary care, healthcare agencies in improving their policies, protocols, screening, and education. It's multiple tiers. So I know that right now many physicians are doing a assessment of teens for depression. Is a suicide assessment very similar to that? They must ask a little bit different questions. Absolutely. I think what is often used around the nation is called the PHQ-9, and it has nine questions about depression and other concerns, but only one with possible thoughts of suicide. And that is not enough to, to know if someone's having thoughts of suicide. We need to be more direct about asking, when is the last time you had thoughts of suicide? Have you ever attempted? So there is a little bit of difference in the response you might get, depending on how direct you are about asking about suicide. So talk to me the difference between perhaps some thoughts of, I just don't want to do this anymore, and a literal thought of suicide. When we think about someone having thoughts of suicide and why it feels so scary to people is because we, we think it's ending life and about death. Having thoughts of suicide and suicide ideation is actually about pain, loss, overwhelm more of those feelings, and definitely an attempt of suicide could lead to death. But if we can help them find relief from that pain, loss, overwhelm, sense of burdensomeness is another big one, we can probably find ways for help that don't include self-harm or suicide. So somebody is looking for relief, not necessarily suicide? Most of the time. There's nothing 100% when, right, we, when right. we talk about suicide. Yeah, I get the majority it. of people, vast majority, it's about pain, loss, overwhelm, burnsomeness. Those are the key indicators I look mm-hmm. for when I'm talking to someone. So why do you think those stats that I talked about a few minutes ago, such a vital increase, especially in youth, in suicide, maybe not in the state of Nevada, but certainly nationally, what do we attribute that to? Unfortunately, our data is delayed. We're still working off of 2017 statistics. And we've seen these rates increase most rapidly, I believe, especially for youth, since 2014. But overall lifespan, we see deaths from despair. So increases in alcohol use, medications like the opioid crisis, and suicide. So there's a general sadness and overwhelm and despair across lifespans. So if families and parents are feeling that, that's going to impact the young young ones, their children. And then you add what I'm hearing from kids when we're out screening 
a sense of profound loneliness and isolation. So even in their own house, they're feeling disconnected. In their school, they're feeling disconnected. Whether real or perceived for them, it's right. what they're experiencing. Right. You add social media and screen time, and research is showing the more screen time in a young person's life, the higher their risk is for suicide. Ooh, wow. Let's let's chat about that for a second. Uh, screen time is a huge topic, and I'm yes. thinking of doing an entire podcast with uh, Dr. Joanne Lippert on screen time for Wonderful. for children. It's um, you can't. It's hard to avoid screen time. Yes. So, what's the correlation between screen time and suicide rate? I am definitely not an expert on this, but I am I trying to uh, figure this out. There's a study by Thomas Joyner out of 2017 where it was it was a trend like a J. Mm -hmm. So absolutely zero screen time was not completely protective because those youth felt disconnected from oh, something that everyone's mm -hmm. involved. That everybody else is doing. Yes. Yeah. Punitive. So, it felt punitive. Yes, zero was not safe. A little bit of screen time, appropriate levels, connecting to friends. Now, are we talking uh, phones and iPads, or are you talking Any TV, screen. too? Any, Any screen, screen time. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Sorry, go ahead. And I couldn't break that down, but I, you know, sure. our, depending on the age, definitely, yeah. the phone will be more. A little bit was protective, but if they were surrounding themselves in other activities and human connections face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. that was protective. And then if you start to take away the human connections and outdoor activities, sports, things like that, being connected to your school, and you replace that with screen time, the rate shoots up like a J. You know, it's interesting. In my family, um, I have a 15-year-old um, that's a part of my in-law family, and we were remarking that she does all of her communication mostly by, by texting, and there, it's not face-to-face -face conversation, and yet it's an ongoing, continuing conversation 24-7, but it's all by texting and phone. Can you talk about the loss of the connection that happens with that? Of course, I'm a baby boomer. We did everything face-to-face. -face. We, we talked until the cows came home. We truly did. But uh, this generation isn't doing that. No, and I think what we're seeing and it's not just the young generation and screens we can't blame that overall society there is an epidemic of loneliness and the youth are just i think it's being exacerbated because of the screens because they're feeling connected but when you're touching and smelling and experiencing mm -hmm. things in nature it it impacts your brain chemistry mm -hmm. where that screen does not and so we're missing all those other senses that promote a wholeness Wow. Wellness. Do you think that here we are in 2020, do you think over the next, it seems like over the next three, four, five years, this is going to be a huge topic with a lot of studies, do you think? I think they're already starting and I look forward to learning more. You hear people having conversations about disconnecting. Right. And I know I, I've gone off social media and my levels of anxiety have immediately decreased. I feel mm -hmm. so much calmer and I'm not chasing that constant need of, what is it called? I, um, the fear of missing something. I don't know right, the term for it. Right. Um, it makes such a difference. And so we can impart that onto our youth to find that balance. And we have a study, um, a small study it's out of Southern Nevada on screens and social media. And 
we see an impact from taking away the phone too. We have lost young people because they were punished by removing the phone, mm-hmm. and that was the triggering event. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that was the only reason, but no, that was I the triggering you. event. And so we all have to find that balance of what is safe and what is healthy, but also mix in that face-to-face connection, turn it off for a few hours and recharge our batteries in other ways. Well, we human beings have such a propensity to take everything to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, we, there isn't much that we won't take all the way to, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, a 10. Until we are forced to swing <laughs> back the other way. Until we're forced to swing back mm-hmm. into the middle. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, so many times taking it to the 10, there's a lot of impact uh, to society as you're taking it all the way to that 10. I mean, we could talk yeah. about a lot of stuff. Yeah. that went to a 10, that in our society today, we're trying to figure out how to get it back to the middle line. Right. Yeah. So they're well, complex questions, absolutely. They are very complex questions. So we're talking about suicide prevention. That's that's a big topic, isn't it, Misty? I mean, but what are some of the factors that go into a training on suicide prevention? So we offer awareness trainings, alertness trainings, and interventions. So very different. And so our goal is to develop an agency or a community that has various tiers. So not everyone needs to be able to intervene like suicide first aid. Mm -hmm. But we do need a few people in the room or in the school or in the community that when someone recognizes a person challenged with thoughts of suicide, they can immediately connect them to that help. Most people do not need acute care and high levels of hospitalization. Most people need someone to hear why they're having those thoughts of suicide today. And through listening, a lot can be de-escalated. And what do you train people to listen to? Listen for, I should say. So if we go back to the awareness, it's being able to talk about suicide and say the word without fear. That stigma and taboo are still very high. There are cultures that believe if you mention the word suicide, it could bring it upon your family, your Mm -hmm. village, your community. And so we have to have trainings to help be comfortable with this. And, And a big part of understanding that suicide is not necessarily about wanting to die helps reduce that stigma. When someone's talking about suicide or writing about it or drawing about it, it tells me that person desperately wants help. But what if they're not speaking about suicide? What are some of the signs and symptoms that one maybe within their family, within their social sphere, would recognize in someone and think to themselves, I think this person needs help? Absolutely. In our trainings, we talk about invitations for help. So those signs that someone is struggling or that concern us. The easiest way to explain this is any change in mood, behavior, or appearance. So truly, friends and family can see those changes more quickly than a teacher. Well, maybe a teacher teacher spent a lot of time with them than a physician maybe or a boss maybe. And so we will teach anyone and everyone to recognize those invitations for help. So say someone is a runner every morning and out of the blue they stop running. Could it be an injury or could it be something more that they don't have the energy to get out of bed? So any single sign we encourage to have a conversation about. I noticed you haven't been running for weeks and you used to love that. What's going on? We show that concern. Through recognition and reaching out with concern, 
the person who may have thoughts or may not knows they're not alone or invisible. They know someone cares. And right there, you're breaking down isolation and planting hope. So either way, the change, we want to intervene early before we have to get to that escalated crisis, right? Right. So that's where I say anyone changes worth reaching out and having a conversation with. We know someone's going through divorce or getting deployed. That's a stressful life event. It doesn't mean it's a bad life event for someone. But until we ask, how are you doing with this change? We won't know if they need more support or they're okay. And in families... Uh, for instance, of course, Senator Reid talking about his father, in families where suicide has occurred, would the uh, children of a family member that committed suicide be more likely to commit suicide? That's a really difficult question because when you have a loss in a family, it in the past it was kept as a secret. We were afraid to talk about it because we didn't want to to perpetuate that risk. But I like to talk about it like any other familial health concern. If it's heart disease in the family or maybe diabetes in the family, we want to know the signs. We want to know the signs of a crisis for that health issue, and we want to know how to manage it. I think that's the same with mental health concerns and thoughts of suicide. So if it's in your family, the risk can come not only from a mental health concern, but also modeling. That's, I was just going to bring yeah. that up. It shows, in some ways, the modeling of how somebody copes. Right. And so we can't ignore it. We want to teach others in the family more healthy coping strategies. But if they only know this and that's modeled, um, we all have challenges in life. Mm-hmm. But if suicide's in your family, that might be the first coping strategy that pops up. Whereas in families that don't have suicide, it doesn't mean it won't pop up but it Mm -hmm. won't be the first most likely. Mm -hmm. And so it's managing it like other health concerns, what to look for, when to know you might need help, who are your support systems, and then what is it going to take to manage those thoughts. So for many, it could be diet, exercise, therapy, medication. The management looks very different for each individual. Well, let's talk about the fact that we don't have a lot of funding uh, in the state of Nevada, in many states, to help people with mental health. And so that's kind of juxtaposed to what we're trying to do, is to get people to talk and have them um, be able to manage their thoughts and understand why they're having these thoughts. What are we doing to cope with the fact that we don't have the funding for mental health and that sometimes it can take weeks and months to get into a clinic? That's a really scary proposition. Especially in the rurals, Miss. You and I know that, in the rurals. The rurals are so isolated, and it's very difficult to get those resources. And even if the resources are available, to get the workforce yeah, to come to the smaller communities is a challenge. That is why we are out there training anyone and everyone and what to look for and how to help. As I mentioned not everyone needs that higher level of care. So if we can recognize someone's challenged early on and de-escalate those situations, build a safety plan for them to manage those thoughts, that can be half the battle for that person and intervention. Mm -hmm. And then those that might need a more intense level of care, there would be less weight, hopefully, 
more more safe beds in facilities if needed. We have an incredible program with mobile crisis out in the rurals and in our larger communities that can come and assess the level of crisis. Mm -hmm. And for kids um, and their families, they can help stabilize the family and hopefully divert from hospitalization. Mm -hmm. We know data tells us the highest risk time is 24 hours to 30 days after inpatient treatment or emergency department care. And so for suicide for attempt. suicide risk thoughts and attempt. thoughts and attempt yeah and so we want to make sure those that don't need that level of care let's get less more therapeutic care less um, invasive care mm-hmm. for those families as possible mm-hmm. and then those that need acute care don't have to wait as long so that reduces the trauma for them and are in the in the rural and frontier counties are we doing mental health by uh, telemedicine there are multiple new programs starting for mobile crisis for youth and adults, the care team. It's very new. They call a hotline that then connects them to that care team, and they assess the level. Telemedicine is absolute, absolutely a component of that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you hope to have the human connection. Right. To, right. to it's true. have a better sense yeah. of that therapeutic care. Yeah. But, but with our resources, we have to get creative. And so mm-hmm. we build access and skills at any door that they turn to or any hotline they turn to. Yeah. So let's talk about the um, crisis call line and all the years. Um, they, I have a stat here. Counselors answered 2.2 million calls a year in 163 crisis centers. It's a lot of calls. It's a lot of calls. And, and our local, our crisis center here in the state of Nevada is primarily volunteers, right? They are developing staffing. As I mentioned, the demand is increasing, and we have not increased those resources in many, many years. Mm-hmm. So we are looking to build that currently. So they are building paid staff, paid staff. Um, case management Mm-hmm. But volunteers are such a lovely part of that process as well. Oh, no kidding. And for years, they've been a part of it. So uh, capturing the person who uh, really just needs someone to talk to on that crisis line, is that the majority of the calls? When they are approaching 70,000 calls a year Oof. at the Crisis Support Services of Nevada, now they are part of that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So they are right. getting others outside of Nevada as well. But we really want to address the local Nevadans first and foremost. So so with this growth, we hope to keep improving upon that. Out of those calls, only a small percentage are sent an emergency intervention. Yeah. So yes, the vast majority need someone to hear them. That connection, again, that human voice or text. The text is quite effective as well. Oh, text. Reaching more youth. When I was at the center, we, we reached about 2% of our young people. And so in about 28, 2008 to 2010, we developed the first texting line in the nation. Oh, I didn't realize with that. With partnerships with UNR. Good for you. And it was through the youth grant. Mm-hmm. So that has increased. At one point, it was almost one-third of all their contacts were through text. So it definitely is capturing more So there was people. a certain number, and they would text, and they would do mm-hmm. their conversation through text. And they still use that, but there now is a national text line as well. Ah, and that's a wonderful one at seven four one seven four one. And so, if somebody um, is texting that they are thinking of committing suicide, 
how what is the legality of that? If someone texts and says, I'm about to commit suicide, but you don't know who the person is, what are the next steps? The volunteers, well, the responders, I will say, staff and volunteers have at least a 73-hour training on crisis intervention, suicide intervention, and a host of other challenges people might face in the community. Often it's lack of resources, abuse calls. So they are very well trained, and then they practice with seasoned listeners. So that really helps them prepare to answer themselves. But texting, you just find out if it's about suicide or what's going on, and it's really an incredible way to intervene. I, but I never there's no I way have... legally to get uh, who the person has that phone number and where they, they live. They, they have the number, but tracing a cell right. phone is challenging. Right. Is that where you're going with That's that? That's where yeah. I'm going with that, okay. Misty, is somebody says, I'm just about to commit suicide, and of course you would be talking to them, but is there any other action that's taken? If need be, if we feel that that suicide is imminent, they will do the best they can to connect emergency services. But mm -hmm. it is with a cell phone, it is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. They're getting better every day. And we do believe if someone is reaching out for help, even the smallest piece of them wants that Want, connection yes, to help. Or they wouldn't have made the phone call. Yeah, Even if they've taken steps to harm themselves or an attempt, they reached out for help. And so we will intervene the best way we can. So they do have those numbers, but unfortunately, it's not always effective. And sometimes they're in other states. So you have a Nevada area code. Got it. But they're not in Nevada and vice versa. We'll have people in Nevada and Las Vegas with other area codes. So that lifeline is connecting them to help. Uh -huh. But it might not be the immediate locality of where they're actually calling for help. So do the counselors on the, on the uh, suicide prevention line they obviously have resources to give to somebody. Do they have resources where that person can get help right away? Well, the most immediate resources, if they are in need, would be emergency departments or mobile crisis. And they are phenomenal. So our youth mobile, re mobile response teams are not 24-7, but they do have a hotline that can connect them to help, and then they would be linked to those teams as soon as possible. But the first responders are always that option if it's imminent. And mm -hmm. we won't hesitate if we think someone is imminent for suicide. Um, what about the homeless population, Misty? It's, of course, increasing in Reno. It's increasing all over the United States. Um, it, and most of us are feeling helpless with yeah. it. Uh, is the suicide rate higher with the homeless? I've noticed just even lately that we've had a couple of suicides with homeless people. And unfortunately, we don't see those numbers when we get the death certificates. We do have a suicide fatality review to try and glean more information from these mm -hmm. deaths by suicide. We want to have those questions answered. Military service, pastor present, yes, yes. Um, LGBTQ, LGBT, yes. we, we don't get that information yes. necessarily. So oh, that's we true. have gaps. And yeah. when we have gaps in who's ending their lives by suicide, that means prevention is probably missing those opportunities to be protective. Mm -hmm. So definitely what I we need more outreach with the homeless population. I know there's amazing clinics that work with them, and we, we do help train and educate staff for that. That's where the mandate for healthcare providers was really crucial. 
um, when you think of populations that we might not have contact with, even veterans, the vast majority are helped in the community, not necessarily at the VA. So how do we make sure we're reaching them and meeting their needs for suicide or mental health concerns, mandating all primary care and other health care providers to have more awareness and education around suicide? Mm-hmm. And I do think it will make a difference. I know that you've been um, involved on the periphery a bit with the Nevada Physician Wellness Coalition, of which you know is under access as 501c3. I do. What yes. an amazing group. And Dr. Polly, he was a guest, I think, in one of my first podcasts about that. And the... Uh, prevention of suicide with physicians. Now, that's a topic nobody wants to talk about. No, and it's so near and dear to my heart because when we started trying to get education mandated with healthcare, it really was because we have such a gap in access to mental health care, mental health providers in this state, and we, we couldn't leave that gap unattended. So people see their dentists. They see doctors for pain. They see primary care regularly. At all ages. Mm -hmm. And so we knew this was something we could help um, just with simple education, help them feel more comfortable with this discussion. Mm -hmm. And we work with the Nursing Association in Nevada. They've been phenomenal at really spreading this knowledge. And that stigma is reducing. So when I started that work and knowing the risk for physicians... It's coming twofold. So the pressures and stress of just that job alone, but then the increased demand. Right. And so they're being sandwiched. And then you add the changes of policies and paperwork and electronic health records. And how can I ask physicians to be more helpful with those with risk for suicide if we're not taking care of their wellness? And so, so meeting Dr. Polly and the coalition was such a gift. And I hope to be a you know, part of helping them keep growing because it will make a difference. Our first responders Mm -hmm. are feeling this. We need to increase the Mm -hmm. wellness for those on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And it can happen. But again, we have to reduce that stigma. Well, and that that's, uh, I'm not comparing that stigma to other people. And uh, nobody wants to go in to see their primary care physician or any physician and wonder whether they're mentally ill or whether they are having suicidal thoughts. I mean, talk about a stigma. That isn't something um, that the average public wants to even think about. Right. That the person who is supposed to be there to support and assist them, we don't even stop to think that maybe they're having their own problems. No, and I, I, I actually am paying attention to that because I'm aware at the time stressors are so profound. But what do we know works? connection. Right. And if we don't give people time, especially our healers, time to connect, which is really why they went into the profession, then we're doing everyone a disservice. And so these these strategies like Crisis Now and Zero Suicide, we hope, will build a community that will support our physicians and our first responders so that they don't get to burn out and have a better sense of wellness. Well, you just said a few minutes ago to me, uh, is such a profound statement. What do we know that works? Connection. And yet it's so hard at times of great sadness or great depression or great overwhelm. Uh, Human beings just want to crawl inside themselves. You know, and when when I, I answered the hotline for many years, and you had people sometimes that might have been homeless, but were still reaching out, and there were no answers. 
no family connections, no systems right. of support, no resources. But what I knew they had was the voice at the other end of the phone. That connection could be enough. And so when we get a little more comfortable as a society at being in the, the more painful and darker places. Um, you think we will get more comfortable, Misty? You've been doing this a long time. I, I, do, you know? I do believe we've reduced our stigma in Nevada. Uh -huh. I, I know our, our frontline um, helpers are better able to talk about that because when you start doing it, you start to see it working. Yeah. And what, what better process to, to give them the support and power that this works than help them when they're doing it. So we are, as the Office of Suicide Prevention and the Nevada Coalition for Suicide Prevention, we're there to support them in this work. So if they're challenged with a tough call, we're there to help them. But most of the time, they just need to know someone's there. They have the skills and the caring themselves. Yeah. So building that system of support, I think, has made a huge difference. And Washoe County is phenomenal at that. Our, mm -hmm. our human services networks and agencies, mm -hmm. we've been working together for decades. Yeah, we have. And, and what about the elderly? Now, yeah, that, uh, oh, wait, that would be me. What about the elderly, Misty? That age group, our elders, unfortunately, we still have one of the highest rates in the nation. We aren't the highest, but if you look at the decades, we are. And it's, it's upsetting because in 20 years of this work, not once have I um, had a federal grant to address elder suicide. Um, again, this is why we went to the health care providers. They are the ones seeing our elders. And mm -hmm. so it was one opportunity, a safety net we could build until other things were built. Mm -hmm. So that's where that education for physicians was so important. Now, I know there's a wonderful um, new program coming out with a partnership with Renown Healthy Communities, Washoe County, and the Health District in Washoe County to combat elder suicide through the epidemic of reducing isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And it's just beginning. So, you know, there are 30 or more community partners involved in this. And it's a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant, mm -hmm. which, is, yes. which is outstanding for Washoe mm -hmm. County and Nevada. And so I really look forward to what this will teach us, not only as a community, but as the Office of Suicide Prevention um, I'm ready to learn because I do believe loneliness is one of the biggest risk factors and connection one of the biggest protective factors. And we all have the ability to improve upon that in our own lives. Well, and a senior, um, the very essence of getting older and being less mobile has profound effect on people and profound effect on their sense of self and their ability to get out and do things. And and certainly I would imagine, and I've only had a couple of instances of a hurt knee, you know, mm -hmm. where I couldn't do some of the things I wanted to do, and it didn't last very long, and I thought, my goodness, this is going to last forever. What, you know, there's all of that as you get older, and uh, it's just profound at an older age. You know, for you still hear this, that um, the majority of those with thoughts of suicide have a mental health diagnosis of some sort, often undiagnosed. But what I think research is showing um, in the Vital Signs Report, 54% said they had a mental health concern. The rest could be environmental and circumstantial. Right. Right. And maybe it's those environmental stressors that are wearing down the mental wellness and vice versa. So we can't just look at one thing, that isolation in the home, 
that sense of self-esteem because I can't get out. I'm immobile. Well, in productivity, mm -hmm. I think um, yeah. productivity at uh, in a senior, and of course, I don't have any stats to go over with that, but... Um, but just my hunch is that productivity is huge, feeling useful, mm -hmm. uh, knowing, and especially if, if they retired from a position where they felt useful or, mm -hmm. or if they had a family where they felt useful and then maybe a spouse dies and now they're alone. It, it just seems to be that would be profound. And that's really when I talk about a sense of burdensomeness, that's to me one of my biggest red flags. What keeps us rooted to the earth is our sense of belonging to our family, our loved ones. And if we feel they'd be better off without us, that gets really dangerous. So not only youth, but elders, if, if they're feeling like their family is too busy to come visit them because they can't leave their home or, or mm -hmm. they have health concerns or financial challenges. Well, and you add poverty to that. Add poverty to that. Mm -hmm. um, Health issues. Yeah, it's a the housing, trifecta there. Housing situation yeah. right now. But we can counteract that sense of burdensomeness because mm -hmm. we know if we can say, what would it take for you not to feel like a burden, be it a young person or an elder, that starts the conversation of helping them be proactive mm -hmm. in their own life. Well, you're in jeopardy of me getting on my soapbox here because, you know, we, we operate, Access operates Aging Disability Resource Center, so we... Um, we talk and spend time all day long with people all over northern Nevada, 60 and over, that are and or disabled. And and you know as well as I do, Misty, the the food shortages, the housing mm -hmm. issues. The, you know, when somebody calls up and they they live on $1,500 a month Social Security, and they worked. They worked. Right. $1,500 Social Security, and their rent is 1300 or 1000 and it's being raised by 200 because we know that's what's happening in Reno. Mm -hmm. And they can't afford it, and so they're going to have to – where are they going to go? I mean, that – it's interesting. I had – I did a podcast a little while back on compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating, compassion fatigue. Oh, yeah. And that's happening for the uh, the caregivers, and it's happening for staff in the nonprofits – because it's overwhelming, there must compassion fatigue must happen on the call center. What yeah. what do you do for people? Is there a certain amount of time they can be on the call center, and because they just get overwhelmed? They work really well to have um, shift leads to be there and support. We're looking to support them at maybe bringing in discussion groups, tough calls that you know that. That yeah. might yeah, cause yeah, yeah. things are getting more amplified out there. Yes, they are. When you talk about compassion fatigue, it's it's also just in our culture, in our world. So many things happening at once. How do you keep yourself safe? You kind of have to shut down. You do. And so, again, reaching out, keeping in the here and now, in that present, even for responders, is important. And letting them discuss how they feel about those mm -hmm. difficult calls or difficult face-to-face -face calls. We have to have peer support out there, absolutely, because I think mental health crises are probably the number one issue right now, mental health issues and crises. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. So so let's go recap a little bit over the last 15 years, Misty. Um, what do you think has had the biggest impact on decreasing the suicide rate in Nevada? Um, it sounds like we've done some things right. 
Nevada has done many things right, and I think decreasing that stigma, increasing the skills and awareness through training programs. When I first started, we had to pound on doors to get to do a training for someone. And now we have training facilitators, and we're, we're needing to add more because the demand for that has increased. Everyone wants to be trained, and we're getting people who want to be trainers. So to me, that says the stigma and taboo have decreased. People are realizing this is preventable. It is one of the mm-hmm. most preventable forms of mm-hmm. death we have. And if we can connect and recognize, that's really a huge part of mm-hmm. that person's challenge with suicide because they feel invisible, unheard, and that the world would be better off without them. Well, and you're right. I mean, we now can say the word suicide. Right. <laughs> it used to be say, whispered. We Yes. You yeah. you didn't say the word. And suicide prevention was something that you other people, you know, did, but you weren't really sure what that meant. No. What that meant. And I've had people ask, well, the more you talk about it, are you increasing it? Mm, no. Those thoughts have been there. People have had these feelings right. and have died by suicide since the beginning of human existence. Right. The awareness lets people know they're not the only ones feeling this way. And it also helps people talk about it and ask for help. We mm-hmm. had these feelings about child abuse and cancer not that long ago in, my, in my lifetime. Yeah, that's true. And you'd never think about the taboo of cancer, would you? People, massive walks and help, and mm-hmm. they're making a difference in saving lives. Mm-hmm. If we poured the resources human and financial into suicide prevention like we do with other health concerns, this would be dropping like you cannot believe. Well, let's um, let's give a phone number that people can call and also uh, name the primary organizations that are involved with suicide prevention. But first, let's give the phone number for where someone can call f- for help. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 24 hours a day, seven days a week at one 800 273 8255. And there's the national text line at 741741. And then for our youth and their families across Nevada, there's Safe Voice. And you can go get the Safe Voice app on the Department of Education website. It has a text, a chat, and a phone line if you're worried about someone, not only for suicide, but other concerns for safety, um, danger, harm. It's a great great application for youth and their families. And if someone listening wanted to volunteer their time uh, towards this subject and help out, where would they call? Oh, we so need people. The Crisis Support Services of Nevada has trainings multiple times a year. You can call 775-784-8085 or go to their website at Crisis Support Services. And then the Nevada Coalition for Suicide Prevention also has a website that you can go check out for trainings, walks, and other opportunities. Hmm. So before we go, tell me what you would like to see happen in the next year, two, five. What would you like to see happen for suicide prevention? What's, what would be your crystal ball of, the, in a perfect world, we would be doing this? That is such a difficult question because I've for decades, lived in a world of scarcity with this topic. You know, it's really such a grassroots area. I would love to see the federal, state, and local resources increase to have more staff, to have more 
community-based organizations dealing with this. Incredible programs like Crisis Now and Zero Suicide show effective evidence about saving lives. And those are community-wide initiatives. So I encourage people to go check out Crisis Now. It talks about mobile crisis and crisis stabilization centers, not emergency departments, which I think will help everyone deal with this topic at a lower level of invasiveness and a much more therapeutic, um, compassionate way of caring for someone with thoughts of suicide. Thank you, Misty. Fabulous topic. What anyone listening that wants to get involved, it sounds like you can do it at a uh, at a personal level where you would talk to somebody who you think is having problems. And as Misty says, just connecting with somebody uh, is what matters. Doesn't even mean that we have to say the right thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I think we get stuck in the, I shouldn't say anything because I don't know what the right thing is. Isn't that true? Yes. And trainings can help with that. But if you are worried about someone, trust your gut instinct and reach out to them and say, how are you doing? That eye contact, that touch, that voice, Mm -hmm. Letting them know you see and hear them can save a life. And then give them the phone number. Can you say that again, the phone number, Miss? 1-800-273-8255. And for anyone listening that would like to get involved, uh, maybe help with the coalition, the crisis call center, or uh, just be more informed on this topic, what number would they call? They can call the Office of Suicide Prevention, 784-2236. Thank you, Misty. I I, I want to thank you not just for being on this podcast, but I want to thank you for 15 years of staying dedicated to a topic that uh, wasn't always um, popular. Thank you for the opportunity to share what we've done, and we look forward to continued strength and growth out there in Nevada. Fabulous. Okay, everyone, thank you for listening to the podcast. We've been talking today about suicide prevention, and we've been talking with our guest, Misty Von Allen, Suicide Prevention Coordinator for the State Office of Suicide Prevention. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast, and for a list of all of our podcasts, you can go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcasts.